want you to keep in mind that the number one song in the United States the week before the Cuban Missile Crisis was the Four Seasons' Sherry. If you're old enough, you've heard it a thousand times. The week during the crisis, it was Bobby Boris Pickett and the Crypt Kickers' Monster Mash that topped the charts. It was another American novelty record classic, which you may very well hear yet again this year at Halloween. The week after, it was The Crystals with He's a Rebel. And then, when the missile crisis was all over, it was back to Frankie Valley and The Four Seasons. Big girls don't cry. If you went to a movie during the Cuban Missile Crisis, you would have seen Phaedra, a very Greek film, not very well remembered, about the rich, powerful, and beautiful wife of a Greek shipping tycoon. I can't even get into the weirdness there. The next week of the crisis, you might have seen The Manchurian Candidate. On television, if, given our timeline and scenario that we're following is valid, Wednesday, October 31st, was your last evening on Earth. You would have seen The Beverly Hillbillies and The Dick Van Dyke Show. My point here is just that life moved on. Some people were scared and holed up in their Kennedy-era fallout shelters, and some people didn't read the news at all. But everyone, Frankie Valley and everyone else, had the Sword of Damocles hanging over their heads. What we've inherited is a world that still plays Monster Mash on Halloween, and the Beverly Hillbillies are somehow inexplicably still in the vernacular culture. But it didn't have to be that way. It could have been very different indeed. The Cuban Missile Crisis, Part 2. Decision Points. This time, on the Cold War Vault. I'm not going to retell every dramatic detail of those very dangerous days. First, because in this format, I really can't. Second, because the stated purpose of this series is to follow the paths of what went right and what went wrong, what happened and what might have happened, factual or counterfactual. Many visitors to the vault already know the story, if not the specifics of the Cuban Missile Crisis. But have no fear. If you don't know much about the crisis, if you're new to life on Earth, welcome, or new to history or just to the Cold War, this is a good summary, if I do say so myself. I'll do my best to touch on all of the greatest hits of the 13 days. Day 1. Tuesday. Robert Kennedy got a phone call from his brother, John, the President of the United States, at around 9 a.m. on Tuesday, October 16, 1962. There was serious trouble, and he needed to come to the White House. Now. Other than the people who had briefed the President from the CIA, 
Bobby was the first to know. Their relationship was very close, so this was not particularly unusual. The first day is represented clearly in most accounts because it was such a shock to people involved. It was seared into their memories and into their memoirs. Not that it should have been a shock, particularly. The Soviet Union had been working on the missiles for weeks and shipping arms, equipment, and personnel in to Cuba for months. But somehow, this was the first the president was seeing of it. It left him feeling angry and out of the loop. And it left the intelligence community feeling that they had dropped the ball, as it were, again. And they had. It wasn't the first time. The Bay of Pigs debacle still haunted Kennedy. After that intelligence failure, Kennedy was furious. And he was no less angry in October 1962. What was obvious to intelligence analysts in the black and white photos of the Cuban countryside admittedly confounded JFK. He couldn't really see what they saw, but that didn't matter. The intelligence community was in agreement. They were telling him that there were ballistic nuclear missiles being built in Cuba, and they were nearly ready to fly. Only days away and that would severely limit the options. They could reach any city in the American Southeast, but it wasn't New Orleans or Tallahassee they were particularly worried about. The missiles could hit Washington, D.C., and they could take out half of the Strategic Air Command, with almost no warning to disperse the planes. A group of Kennedy's closest advisors convened at 11.45 a.m. to hear the news and debate the options. This intense discussion among them continued throughout the crisis, and in fact, six weeks after. The group would come to be called the EXCOM, the Executive Committee of the National Security Council, but contrary to popular belief, according to Robert Kennedy, it was generally just referred to as the group. By the end of this first day, the idea of a naval blockade of Cuba was already circulating. But then, so was an immediate strike by air and ground. Day 2, Wednesday. Robert McNamara, the Secretary of Defense and former president of the Ford Motor Company, eventually came to support the blockade because he felt that it was a flexible response that could be tightened as the situation called for it, or loosened. But on Wednesday, he was on the fence and ordered the deployment of forces that could support 500 sorties against Cuba beginning on October 23rd. We have with this the first potential date for the start of World War III. It's a critical point in a world history that just so happened to have never happened. The Joint Chiefs of Staff wanted an airstrike, a surgical airstrike, they called it. That would include all of the missile sites, but because it wasn't entirely certain if all of the missile sites had been found, the strike would have to include every military installation in Cuba, and then it would be followed by an invasion. McNamara admitted that the situation may eventually come to that, but he suggested that they shouldn't start with that. 
he fell back on his support of the naval blockade. And the debate went on. Sometime during the day, that Wednesday, more U-2 reconnaissance suggested that there were between 16 and 32 more missiles under construction, more than had originally been thought. The foreign minister of the Soviet Union, Andrei Gromyko, came to see Kennedy late that afternoon. It was a scheduled meeting that the president thought shouldn't be canceled because it would seem awkward. Gromyko denied that the Soviet military aid to Cuba was anything but defensive, which Kennedy already knew not to be true. Kennedy didn't mention the missiles to Gromyko, who later wrote that Kennedy was nervous and prone to making contradictory statements about Cuba. This isn't surprising, given what Kennedy was concealing in that meeting. Day 3. Thursday. At 9.15 on Thursday night, some of the most important people in the administration, and probably at that moment in the world, crowded into a motor pool limousine like it was a clown car. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Maxwell Taylor, the director of the CIA, John McCone, the Attorney General, Robert Kennedy, all in the front seat with the driver. Six more unnamed people sat in the back. They left the State Department garage on their way to the White House. It was to avoid the suspicion that might arise from a row of limousines arriving at the White House for a late-night meeting. And then the debate went on. Day 4. Friday. The XCOM fell into four working groups to evaluate options. Dean Rusk later said that the eventual success was likely due to the constant interpersonal conversations, whether inside or outside of the working groups. The topics to be handled were, first, the blockade of Cuba, second, a surgical airstrike, third, a full invasion. The fourth working group under Soviet expert and ambassador to France, Chip Bolin, and ambassador-at-large for Soviet affairs, Llewellyn Tommy Thompson, developed theoretical responses by the Soviet Union for each action. Tommy Thompson, who had actually spent holidays with Khrushchev, may have done more to defuse the crisis than anyone else. More on that later. During the day, the working groups refined their theories on the effectiveness of each action. The blockade was flexible, but an apparently weak response, as the Joint Chiefs charged. The surgical airstrike, even by the Air Force's own admission, might miss some of the missiles. That, and as Robert Kennedy thought then and wrote later, in 13 days, it would kill thousands and thousands of civilians, and that was an unacceptable course for the United States, morally. The full invasion had much of the same opposition, with the added tactical problem that fighting small battles across Cuba would take time, maybe a lot of time, during which the missiles could, and almost certainly would, become operational. And there was just no way that they wouldn't be fired on the invading force, or maybe the homeland of the invading force. The president had decided 
that canceling his schedule would be suspicious. So he had gone on to political rallies in Ohio and Illinois that morning on what was intended to be a six-state tour. But events were moving faster than convenience would allow. A mysteriously sudden stuffy nose put an end to his trip, and he started back to Washington. Day 5. Saturday. On Saturday morning, Defense Secretary McNamara ordered four more tactical air squadrons put on alert, in case the airstrike option was taken. He noticed that an aide had overheard the call to the Pentagon. McNamara said, If the president doesn't take that option, there won't be time to do it later. The president was back from Chicago and went for an early afternoon swim in the White House pool. But nothing was relaxed. Nothing was normal. Robert Kennedy sat at the pool's edge and discussed the meeting that was looming with his brother. The 2.30 meeting undertook the problem. It was a meeting of the entire National Security Council, and so there were attendees that hadn't been privy to the intense debate that had gone on in the days before. The president complained that the plan for the airstrike he had been given wasn't surgical. It was massive. Confirming the size of that massive strike, one member of the Joint Chiefs of Staff made a suggestion. And though it seems like it should almost certainly have been Curtis LeMay, he wasn't in the meeting that afternoon. The suggestion was that they go in blazing with nuclear weapons and level the island. That would create a much higher degree of certainty. The Soviets, this member, the Joint Chiefs of Staff argued, would certainly use nuclear weapons on the U.S. if the roles were reversed. Robert Kennedy wrote later about the exchange. He said, I thought as I listened of the many times that I had heard the military take positions which, if wrong, had the advantage that no one would be around at the end to know. Perhaps less eloquently, John Kennedy later confided in a reporter friend, The first advice I'm going to give my successor is to watch the generals and to avoid feeling that because they are military men, their opinions on military matters are worth a damn. Of course, Kennedy couldn't really have known, and probably did not expect, that his successor was Lyndon Johnson, sitting in the room that afternoon. After the arguments had been presented, Kennedy asked Johnson for his comments. According to Jackie, who had a generally low opinion of Johnson and found him to be a useless decision-maker, Johnson characteristically deferred. He said, You have the recommendation of your Secretary of State and your Secretary of Defense. I would take it. Kennedy asked that Ted Sorensen draft alternative speeches depending on the final decision, but he wanted to resist committing to the blockade until he could speak to the Air Force one more time in the morning. That night, the intelligence community produced another report titled, Consequences of Certain U.S. Courses of Action on Cuba. The document is known as SNIE 11-19-62, and it can be found in the CIA Crest database. The document describes the Soviet armament's deployment to Cuba, 
leaving little doubt that the White House was running out of time. Six launchers for medium-range ballistic missiles capable of hitting Washington, D.C. had become operational. They would be ready to fly within eight hours of an order. 22 Ilyushin-28 bombers capable of carrying nuclear missiles were being assembled. One had been completed. 39 MiG-21 jet fighters, of which 35 were assembled, were ready to defend the island. 24 surface-to-air sites with 16 ready to be launched, 12 cruise missile patrol boats, and three cruise missile sites on land. And there was something else that the report didn't mention, and it wouldn't be known for decades. It was one of those unknown unknowns, and it would have changed everything. Day 6, Sunday. On Sunday, war was in the air. Kennedy finally authorized the blockade in a meeting with the Secretary of State and Secretary of Defense at 10 a.m. For reasons of politics and not international law, as some have suggested, the blockade was to be referred to as a quarantine. Dean Rusk later said that a blockade can mean a number of things in international law. But over the years, it had become rigid with all sorts of what he called barnacles. Quarantine was chosen because no one really knew what it actually meant. At 11.30, the commander of the Tactical Air Command, General Walter Sweeney, gave a presentation in the Oval Office on an airstrike. Despite the fact that the naval blockade had been approved and was going ahead, almost no one believed it would resolve the problem. It could just be a means of slowing the events of the crisis. Kennedy understood that alternatives needed to be in place and instructed the Tactical Air Command to be ready to carry out an airstrike anytime after Monday morning, the 22nd effectively moving the timeline up by 24 hours. Though, really just to be ready to take action in the face of the showdown that was coming the next day. At 2.30 p.m., the National Security Council convened and heard the details of the quarantine. Approaching ships would be stopped. If they didn't stop, then a first shot would be fired across the bow. Then a shot would be fired into the rudder. This left Kennedy particularly uneasy. The details of a presidential speech to be televised the next day were hashed out. Subtleties of language were changed. The use of the term miscalculate was dropped from the letter intended to be sent to Khrushchev because Kennedy remembered that it had been mistranslated somehow during their recent meeting in Vienna. Then, any reference to Vienna was taken out then put back in. In little notes like these in the National Security Council memorandum, you can see the extraordinarily thin eggshells these men were forced to walk on. Every step was a tiptoe, while the Joint Chiefs continued to contemplate full-scale nuclear war. When asked what the President thought might happen after the speech the next evening, he said, The Russians will work faster on the missiles in Cuba. 
They will announce that if we attack Cuba, Soviet rockets will fly, and possibly they will try to squeeze us out of Berlin. Any one of those, or all three, would have been a step toward war. And maybe not even toward, maybe right into it. Day 7, Monday. Monday was perhaps the second most dangerous day in the Cuban Missile Crisis. Mostly because no one really knew what would happen when Khrushchev was squeezed by the presidential address. Remember that the original plan for airstrikes and the start of military action was to begin on the 23rd. Now it was to be a naval quarantine, but they were moving into the unknown with all of the pieces in position to launch World War III. And even if you feel like that's an exaggeration, the recollections of some of the people involved at the end of the day suggest that you might be wrong. Here, I will offer a time-stamped blow-by-blow account of the events of Monday. Eight days after the missiles were photographed, Kennedy scheduled a television address for that evening at 7. There was no way to hold back the rumors anymore. Pierre Salinger, the press secretary, said that secrecy about the issue was eroding, and it was only calls from the President and Secretary of Defense to the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Herald Tribune that held the story back for another few hours. At 10.55 a.m. on Monday morning, the State Department transmitted a special signal to its diplomatic posts. The GO signal instructed envoys to brief foreign heads of state and ministers about the crisis and what was about to happen later that day in the United States. 12 noon, the Strategic Air Command put its B-52 nuclear bomber force on alert. At any given time, one-eighth of the force would be airborne. SAC also dispersed 183 B-47 bombers to 33 civilian airfields. All were armed with nuclear weapons. Similarly, the Air Defense Command dispersed 161 aircraft to 16 bases. All 161 were armed with nuclear weapons. The first time that that had been done. At 2.14 p.m., the Joint Chiefs of Staff notified the State Department that it intended to put U.S. military forces on DEFCON 3. Defense conditions are readiness states that count down from 5 to 1. 1 meaning nuclear war is happening right now outside your window. In retrospect, this was probably politically tactless. But the Pentagon was thinking about readiness, not politics. But that's a smaller piece of the complex puzzle of that day than has been made of it. It could have been a major turning point. It wasn't. At 3 p.m., the National Security Council convened once again, this time, and for the first time, with representatives from the Office of Emergency Preparedness, a national civil defense and recovery agency. Not a good sign. Secretary of State Dean Rusk said, If anyone thought our response was weak, they were wrong. 
because I believe that a flaming crisis is immediately ahead of us. At 5 p.m., Kennedy met with several congressional leaders to explain the situation. The sudden explosion of activity and rumors around Washington. Kennedy was verbally abused by detractors through the meeting who wanted an immediate and decisive strike on the missile sites. One unnamed elderly senator just groaned and fell over on the table with his head in his hands and stayed there for a while. In the end, Kennedy rallied them together, and later, Robert remembered that within the hour, his brother had become more philosophical about the confrontation. He reminded Robert that the congressional reaction was very close to what the first reaction among the XCOM had been. At 6 p.m., one hour before the address, newly appointed Soviet ambassador Anatoly Dobrynin went to Secretary of State Dean Rusk's office. Though he didn't know why he'd been summoned, it immediately became clear. Rusk gave Dobrynin a copy of the president's speech and told him that the U.S. knew all about the missiles. Rusk remembered that, quote, Dobrynin aged at least 10 years right before my eyes. He acted as a man in physical shock. The ambassador said, this is a terrible situation, a most unfortunate thing for us to do. Rusk later wrote that given the ambassador's reaction, there was no way Moscow had told him about what was happening in Cuba. A letter from Kennedy and a copy of the speech was delivered to the Kremlin through this channel. The letter held these lines. I have not assumed that you or any other sane man would, in this nuclear age, deliberately plunge the world into a war which it is crystal clear no country could win and which could only result in catastrophic consequences to the whole world, including the aggressor. 7 p.m. President Kennedy gave an 18-minute speech that had been crafted to expose the Soviet activities in Cuba, to explain the quarantine, and to persuade the American people and the world that some course of action was necessary. Each member of the XCOM and the Security Council generally went their own ways after the speech. It was, by all accounts, a deeply introspective night. At 7.30, a meeting of ambassadors available in Washington met with Secretary of State Dean Rusk. Those present recalled that he said, I would not be candid and I would not be fair with you if I did not say that we are in as grave a crisis as mankind has been in before. Dean Rusk then spoke to the press corps at the State Department and had a cordial discussion that lasted quite a while. He recalled in his memoir that the reporters were tired, scared, and haggard, and leaned on him for support. This, in turn, allowed him to lean on them. 
He wrote, quote, Reporters like us realized we'd be lucky to survive the crisis. That must have been a very hard truth to cope with in that room that night. Robert Kennedy remembers that he went to bed that night filled with concern and trepidation. Dean Rusk made it back to his house by 2 a.m. and went to bed. He woke up four hours later at dawn and thought, ah, I'm still here. This is very interesting. He went on to write, Khrushchev had not immediately responded with a nuclear strike. This was serious, but perhaps it wouldn't be fatal. Robert Kennedy recalled greeting the day with the optimistic, we had taken the first step. It wasn't so bad and we were still alive. Those are some very low standards when it comes to international relations. I believe this was the general sentiment among the men. A brief sense of optimism followed by the recollection that they were all still in it together and deeply. The first major turning point had come and gone. The speech, the unknown reaction, and the announcement of the imminent implementation of the quarantine. But nothing had been solved. Nothing resolved. They were simply alive for another day. And the thorny turning points that branched and splintered into ever more likely starting points for war were still ahead. We are now ten days, or fewer, from World War III. Next time on the Cold War Vault. Thank you for stopping by The Vault. This episode and the series was researched, written, and produced by DJ Kinney. There are some great show notes for this series on coldwarvault.com. Please check them out. Like and follow on Facebook and Twitter at Cold War Vault. And please subscribe to the show anywhere you get your favorite podcasts. You might want to start working on that family refuge. Not much time left now. See you then.